Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Hope you're staying happy, hope you're staying safe, and most of all, hope you're staying healthy. A little bit later on in the show, Eden Robinson, author of the Scotiabank Giller Prize-nominated Trickster books, stops by to talk about her life, quitting a five-pack-a-day habit of cigarettes, and the release of her final book in the trilogy, The Return of the Trickster. That's a little bit later on. First up, though, described as cultural rocket fuel by Vanity Fair, Vivek Shraya is a Canadian multimedia artist whose art, music, novels, poetry, and children's books touch on themes of cultural transformation as well as personal transformation. Her successful one-woman show, How to Fail as a Pop Star, details a failed career in music, from singing in religious gatherings to talent shows in Edmonton malls, to a grab at pop stardom. It's now a raw and honest book about fame for, as the press release says, any kid who ever sang into a hairbrush and imagined their name in lights. Here's Vivek Shraya. What is a budgeon and how did it affect your young life? Oh, what a great question. Um, so a budgeon is a Hindu devotional song. Um, and when I was a child, we used to go to a religious organization where singing bhajans was the sort of central form of prayer. So I guess, uh, you know, the Christian translation would be like a hymn or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and for me, those songs, there was something about... I mean, I think devotional music in general has this kind of like ache and longing um, and, and beauty uh, to, to those kinds of songs and bhajans are, are, are no exception. There, there, there is all those elements. And so I think, you know, at a young age, this was sort of one of my earliest forms of singing was singing bhajans and getting asked to sing lead. There were like lead singers and followers and I was asked to sing lead. And um, I just, I loved doing it so much. I, I loved hearing my voice, uh, you know, being able to hit certain notes or do certain runs, especially like Indian music is also about like hitting a lot of notes in a short period of time. And so that stuff was really exciting to me, but just the, like the beauty and the longing of those songs just really appealed to me. And was there something to do with the attention that came with being one of the lead uh, singers and being able to perform the runs and all that stuff? Was that part of it for you as well? Definitely. I mean, it was such an interesting time in my life because, you know, I was in junior high uh, and I didn't understand why. I didn't understand what I was doing that was making people read me a particular way. It was very confusing. Um, but at my religious organization on Sunday, I would sing these budgeons and I was beloved, you know, uh, in fact, parents would be like, I wish my children could be like you. So it was such a strange tension between, you know, Monday to Saturday at school, getting, you know, homophobic bullying, and then on Sunday feeling very special. So it wasn't just like the desire to be praised. I mean, that's nice. And I think children like that in general, but I think it was the one day of a week where I felt I had value and I had worth. While all that is happening, uh, there was kind of a, a trinity that you looked to. And I'm thinking now of Madonna, Sheryl Crow, and Tori Amos. <laughs> oh, you've were, done a deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> who, were, who were very important to your young life. Pop music really represented something to you. I think that music, you know, affects all of us emotionally and, and we all connect to music in different ways. But for you, it sounds like really there was uh, this bond that was unbreakable between pop music and these three artists in particular. 
Absolutely. I mean, the one uncredited artist there actually is Whitney Houston. So it was actually hearing I Will Always Love You in a parking lot and I mean, everywhere else <laughs> in the <laughs> 90s um, that just like really, really made pop music more than, you know, uh, my dad's like Lice La Bonita single that he used to play. Um, that was the first time that I remember having just like a, a kind of connection to something uh, music that wasn't, you know, Bollywood or Budgeons, or like I said, my dad's collection. And I think part of it was that, you know, R&B music is also in a weird way, similar to Indian music in that it is also about like vocal uh, agility, right? Like what Whitney Houston does and I will always love you is not that different than what my budget like guru was doing. And so I think for me, I was, there was, just, and also I will love you. I will love, I will always love you also has that devotional quality, right? It's like, I will always love you. So I think it was that song that like really opened the world of pop music to me. And soon after for me, you know, certainly as I became you know, super obsessed with pop music, Madonna, Sheryl Crow, Tori Amos, um, you know, they sort of, they did become the Trinity. I think for me, Madonna, I was really drawn to her chameleon-like nature. She was constantly changing herself. Um, and I, I found that really fascinating. Um, and with Sheryl Crow, you know, she, I just thought her songs were just really smart. Like she wrote great pop songs. Um, they were, again, they, there was that element of longing. Like I think about strong enough, lie to me, I promise I'll believe, uh, lie to me, but please don't leave. Like there's something about that, that like actually sounds like it could be a budget. And then Tori Amos, it was just strange. It was just really out there. And I think as an angsty teenager in Edmonton, there was something about it that was like, this is a little bit odd. And so am I, <laughs> how wonderful. So, you know, I think those three artists and then, you know, of course, Whitney Houston, like definitely had like a huge impact on me as a listener. You're listening to my interview with Vivek Shraya, author of How to Fail as a Pop Star, available wherever you buy fine books. Oyemus, also unafraid to uh, talk about pain and to really address things that pop music often walks away from. Totally. I mean, I remember, I mean, one of my earliest memories of the word queer, to be honest, was she has a song called Blood Roses. And my, my, my dad, you know, he was like, what is, <laughs> what is this? But she says, <laughs> I think you're a queer. And, you know, one of her albums about like miscarriage and rape, like, you know, they, she, I felt like she gave so much of herself to, to her music. And I think that was really interesting and inspiring to me as well. It was like, what does it mean for music, not just to be, you know, dance songs, which there's nothing wrong with, but to actually be autobiographical or to tackle a social issue or to bring awareness to a social issue. We're getting closer to the new book, but okay. still. <laughs> I like this journey. <laughs> we're, we're getting there. So when you go to bed at night, you have written that the place that you ache is in your pop star dreams. Mm -hmm. So this is something that has, has been with you for a long time now. Does it still ache? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, like yesterday the Juno nominations came out and like we submitted for them. And like, I mean, you have to understand as a, my goal was never the Juno's, it was the Grammys. <laughs> but you, you learn to modify your dreams as you age. That's and right. like, even after writing How to Fail as a Pop Star, like even after performing it every night, like there is still a part of me that's like, but, but, but maybe, maybe I'll be that one exception. <laughs> I'll be that one 40 year old <laughs> that like somehow breaks it, right? So it's like, you know, yeah, I think, and I think that's the tension of, of that story of How to Fail as a Pop Star is like, 
sitting with the fact that like we can pretend to move on and we can find ways to move on from our dreams. But I do think for a lot of us, our dreams sometimes are almost like wounds that we hold and we carry, especially when they're unfulfilled and that, that they never really go away, you know? I just interviewed a guy called Thad Cockrell who had a number one hit single recently with a song called Swingin'. Mm. And I think it was number one in February. In January of this year, he woke up, his new album had come out a few months beforehand, nothing, like absolutely nothing had happened with it. It was his fourth or fifth or sixth album. And he said, that's it, I'm done here. And Jimmy Fallon was in a hardware store somewhere across the other side of the country, heard Swingin' on Spotify and said, I love this song. Brought him on The Tonight Show, all of a sudden, wow. number one hit single. Wow, 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 wow. So what you're saying is I just have to get it to Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> that, I think, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> now, when did you decide uh, to move along from this dream? You write that pop stardom is one of those things that is very time-specific. I think the Thad Cockrell story kind of suggests otherwise, but I think you're looking at it in a very specific way. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, am not familiar with that Mm -hmm. in his music and his journey, but like for me, like pop music is very much tied to like certain markers. So, you know, whether it's like having a hit single on, on radio, performing on SNL, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, performing on the David Letterman show, um, you know, doing sort of like arena tours, yeah. you know, like Ariana Grande style, Bieber style, right? Like that's pop stardom. Like, do I think I can have like a healthy indie music career for the rest of my life? Probably, maybe. Uh, but pop stardom in particular, the, the parameters of pop stardom for me feel very much tied to like being in your teens or your twenties at your early, at, at your latest in, mm-hmm. in life. And I think for me, so I put out an album, uh, I want to say when I was 29, called One to One. And I, I remember waking up that morning and, and maybe having a very similar experience to Thad being like, this is it, this is the last one. And I think, you know, a big part of it was tied to my age was to be like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know how realistic it is for me to believe or hope that I'm going to be able to make it happen on the level on the level that I wanted to make it happen. So I I would say it was definitely in my late 20s where I was starting to, and I think also what was happening at that time is that my lens was changing. I think when you're in your your teens, I mean, one of the weird things about this whole story of Popstar is now looking back on it, it was like, it was kind of insane that I thought this was gonna happen. Now that I think about it, I'm like, I was a brown queer kid in Edmonton. Like how, just how was this gonna happen? And again, there are always exceptions to the rule, but the exceptions are, are still exceptions, right? And, you know, I think for me, you know, like I said, when you're a teenager, you believe that anything is possible. Mm-hmm. You believe that if you have talent and if you work hard, um, you know, if you know the right people, you're gonna go. And, and all the signs were sort of pointing in that direction for me. And then suddenly when I turned 28, 29, I was like, oh, actually I'm not entitled to success. And I think that was a huge learning moment for me. Like I'm actually not entitled to having my dreams realized. They are, there are thousands of people in the world who believe they're going to be successful, who are talented, who you know are, have the right people, but it just doesn't line up. And we don't really talk about those things, right? We really like to focus on the one person who believed that it was true and then it happened. And I think that that story is true for that person, but it's actually also deceiving. Well, there's my Thad Cockrell story. That's a one in a gabillion <laughs> exactly. chance of having that happen. Exactly. Absolute fluke. 
And, well, you know, I'm going to continue to hold on to that. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Vivek Shraya, author of How to Fail as a Pop Star. Failure, though, is, I think, uh, a, a word that that you have thrown around a fair amount when I've seen you speak or, or and, and, and in how to, fail, uh, how to Fail as a Pop Star. It's in the title. But failure for you represents something. When, when I think of failure, I guess what I'm saying is when I think of failure... I think of it as a learning curve. I think of falling down six times, getting up that seventh time, and hopefully you learn what you tripped on the first six times. Um, I, I feel like your take on it is different. Yeah, my take on it is that, that like moment where you fall. The moment where you fall and you're in pain and it hurts. Mm. Because what I think happens is, yes, as a survival mechanism, we are forced to get up and move on and learn. But that to me is actually not failure, that's resilience, right? Like, and, and I think that failure becomes conflated with resilience and they're two separate things. And I think we don't give ourselves the permission to actually stay in the moment of pain. And part of why that feels important to me is that despite being 40, I, it still hurts. And so no matter how much I have done since my 20s, no matter how many books I published or yada, 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 yeah there is still that pain. And I think for me, you know, writing this play and book was about saying, I don't think the pain goes away just by pretending it doesn't exist, right? And to use your analogy, you know, just putting a Band-Aid on it, like, I don't know that that's enough, right? And so for me, failure and owning failure is really about taking that extra step to say, Ooh, <laughs> that hurt. <laughs> that really hurt. And it doesn't feel good. And it might always hurt, right? Yeah. It might always hurt no matter all the things, you know, all the ways that I will, you know, quote unquote, to use a pandemic word pivot, <laughs> it will, it will still <laughs> always hurt. It's funny. It's like skipping through some of those seven stages of denial and exactly. that sort of thing, and just getting a right to acceptance and, <laughs> and saying, this is where I'm at. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then was writing the play and then now the, the, the book, having the book come out, uh, was that cathartic in any way for you? Or is that catharsis something that you don't really want because you want to hang on to those feelings so that you understand them better or that you live with them in a different way? I mean, it's a bit of both. Like there were times where I went out last year and did the play and this sounds dramatic, but it felt humiliating. It mm -hmm. felt humiliating to stand up in front of a group of people and say, I failed at something. And there was a part of me that was like, and why did you want to do this again? <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, I also strangely found it very freeing because it felt like the, the, the first times in my life where I wasn't lying about what I wanted. And I think part of that also goes back to this idea of ambition. You know, I think that being marginalized, I've had to really hide my ambition. You know, like I think if you're a brown artist, a queer artist, trans artist, your job is actually not to become successful. Your job is to mobilize your community. Your job is to make things better for your community. You don't get to just be unabashedly ambitious. And I think for me, what was freeing about the play was I got to say, actually, despite, I care about my community, but actually, I really wanted to be a pop star, <laughs> too. You're listening to my interview with Vivek Shraya, author of How to Fail as a Pop Star, available wherever fine books are sold. You know, yeah. like, and in fact, that's what I wanted before I even understood 
you know, my social responsibilities, uh, you know, being marginalized. And so there was something about just being able to admit the dream that felt freeing. And then also to say, to not lie, to not be like, and all this other stuff is amazing. It's like, yes, mm -hmm. I, I remember saying to my director, there's a line in the play where I say something like, you know, and I would trade any achievement, any accolade just to be seen as a pop star or even a one hit wonder. And my, my director, I felt like he felt like I was like, conjuring the devil or something you know by like by saying something so awful he's like but do you actually mean that and it's like actually I do I would I, you know I I genuinely again and it sounds so ungrateful but like it's like I I would absolutely trade every book I've published every film mm. I've made just to be seen as a pop star and I think that you know uh it felt important to say that <laughs> as awful as it sounds. <laughs> well, I think there's a, a, a bit of self-realization there. I mean, I, I think that we so often uh, force those, I don't, maybe, I don't know, humiliating things to the, to the backdrop. We assign them to the dark crevices of our lives uh, because they are kind of uncomfortable to talk about the thing that I really wanted that didn't happen for me. Uh, and I think there's something really interesting about bringing that to the light because I don't know if this was part of your plan, but I think it's helpful for people to see that they're not alone in dreaming big and maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, but it, 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 there, there's something that is community building in that by itself uh, that, that is positive, that can maybe is the thing to take away from a negative. I mean, that's really generous. I mean, certainly going into the play, I really did see it as an invitation. Like I really, we even talked about it as explicit and as literal as having like a, a like a, sh a failure shrine where audience members <laughs> after could like light a candle for their failure, write it on a piece of paper. Like that really was a secondary goal of the project is to mm -hmm. really allow other, everyone in the room to think about the things that didn't work out for them and to like take that time to honor them. Like Richard, I mean, I'm so curious, like for you, like, did you, was the dream this was the dream for you to to be a, you know a journalist and talk to other yeah not i mean not in the form that we're currently doing it <laughs> via zoom uh, but zoom. <laughs> yeah i've always wanted uh from my very early early days uh i wanted to be on the radio and i and i felt that i could do something on television that could be interesting I mean, that's great, you know, like, I, and that's what, I think that's the goal, right? But I think that you are another Thad <laughs> in that way, because I do think like a, a lot of people don't achieve the thing that they want, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's like reconciling. I think you find a way, I mean, again, even for me in my twenties, so many of my friends who I had sort of like, we, there was sort of a crew of us who were pursuing music. As soon as people started to hit 30, um, I, I'm one of the only people that just like kept at it, you know, like, which is funny, like, despite the fact that I was like, mm, it's not going to happen. I still kept at it. Whereas all my other friends, they like moved back home. They, yeah. you know, they fell in love. They went back to school. So oh, it's you know, buying a house. It, buying, buying a house, a house exactly. is, is the dream killer yeah, right there exactly. for a lot of people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The upcoming novel is called the Subtweet. Uh, music is central once again, uh, and it's about the trials and tribulations of being brown and female musicians in the contemporary industry. Um, I recently, on my television show, Pop Life, uh, had uh, a, a panel of women who have been involved in the music industry, uh, some wow. of which as long as 40 or, or more years. What will uh, the subtweet add to this conversation? I mean, I think that the music industry is 
one of the hardest industries mm -hmm. <laughs> in the arts. You know, the joke I make is that it was actually more manageable and accessible for me to publish a book than it was for me to make it as a successful musician <laughs> and publishing a book is very hard. Like that's another bucket listing for a lot of people. Yep. Uh, but I actually found it more like doable than creating a, a, like a successful and sustainable career in the music industry. The reality is when you're racialized, when you're marginalized, it's just a whole other playing field. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at who is on like the big festival posters or, you know, in our old life when festivals existed, <laughs> you know, it's still like the same. It's like Sam Roberts band and it's like the same artists that, you know, the stars or whoever, it's like the same right. artists that I used to see on band on posters when I was like living in Toronto 15 years ago, yeah. you know, like the, the music industry, uh, you know, even watching yesterday, the Juno nominations come in. I'm like, yes, of course it's, it's this group of people. Right. And again, like I, I sound bitter, but it's more just about the challenges of, um, trying to break in an industry that continues to like focus in a particular way. And I, I think the conversations about racism in the music industry are certainly happening and certainly, you know, we're trying to, to see changes. Uh, I think it's few, it's like very slow. <laughs> so um, I think my novel is just trying to, to bring light to, to what it's like for two racialized musicians. And then to also just like add the layer of tension um, of just trying to build community with each other, right? Like the premise of the, the story is that you have one artist who's sort of like an underground indie artist, very respected by, uh, you know, like music lovers. Um, and she writes a song that ends up being covered by another artist who's just a, uh, just a, who is a YouTube cover singer. Right. And then the song goes viral. So it's like the cover version goes viral and they become friends. But as the song gets more and more successful for the artist who didn't write it, as you can imagine, there's sort of this tension and sort of like, again, playing with these ideas of like racism in the industry, but also like friendship and authenticity. Like who does this song belong to that whole thing? So yeah, those are some of the things that come up in that. And, and career jealousy, because again, I think that's another thing we don't talk enough about is just like what it means to be in community with people that you sometimes are just very jealous of. <laughs> well, I think if you've ever spent any real amount of time around musicians or actors and had them speak openly and honestly to you, <laughs> it's something that comes up. Comedians exactly. too, I would put into that group. Exactly. You're listening to my interview with Vivek Shraya, author of How to Fail as a Pop Star, available wherever you buy fine books. Uh, Lisa Robinson said something interesting uh, during this interview that we did. And her take was that MTV ruined everything for women in the music industry because all of a sudden there was an idealized image that not only did you have to be able to sing really well and you had to uh, be able to do all those things, but now you got to dance. Now you have to do all the, the stuff. And there was people, Katy Perry and Madonna and all those people do it. But it, before MTV, it was a slightly different feel she thinks, uh, and she uh, f points her finger at specifically a lot of the, the acts that came up in the late 80s and, and the early 90s, probably uh, at least one of which would be on your trinity, Madonna, uh, <laughs> as, as someone that, that, that pushed unrealistic uh, ideas of what it was to be a female musician uh, and, 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 and talked about that or, or displayed it uh, via MTV. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been interesting because like a lot of like, at least the early parts of my career are still identifying as male, but I would mm -hmm. say that like being like effeminate or queer, I still experienced what I would classify as misogyny. Like um, at the time in the early 2000s, I mean, it's so interesting to see where like 
dance music in pop has gone for queer artists now. Like you have someone like Sam Smith, who's like very unabashedly queer and people like, you know, like lots of like mainstream yeah. people love Sam Smith, which is incredible. But when I was making dance music in the early 2000s, there was this pressure to like, sort of like hide the image, right? Because we still want you to be masculine. We don't want you to be too pretty. We don't want you to show your face. We don't want to see your body. Like it was very about like, it's about having a very tough or even a hidden mess, uh, like image, you know, I think mm -hmm. about Daft Punk. Uh, I think about like LCD sound system at the time. Like it's, it's all about being hidden behind this veil. And so, and again, I think it is tied to misogyny because there's this idea that we can't have dance music if the male artist is too girly, essentially. That, that's what I was hearing. And of mm -hmm. course, there's always exceptions like, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince, but there, there was something else happening there as well. So yeah, it's been interesting now being, you know, trans and navigating the industry in this way. And um, yeah, <laughs> it's been interesting. Yeah, and, and navigating the industry that way as a trans person, is there uh, a roadmap for this for you or are you figuring it out as you, as you go along? I mean, in some ways, like the bulk of the industry, like the, the nitty gritty hasn't really changed. You know, like my brother and I formed a band two years ago, uh, three years ago. Oh God, I can't even keep track of time. 2015. Wow. I have lost years during the pandemic. Well, the, the 2020 doesn't count. So yeah, exactly. I, I see how you get confused. We created a band called To Attached and, you know, we did like, we started touring, which was the first time that I'd been doing music touring. Like I, I do a lot of like book stuff and whatever, but with music tours, it was like the same, like we were splitting $50 at the door yeah. and I'm wow, deja vu, like things have not changed in this business <laughs> to make money as an artist. And so those things haven't really changed, but I, you know, I think part of it is like, I had to learn really quick, like, oh, right. Also like in a grimy bar, there's no place to change, right? Like if you're trans, like, what am I going to do? Go in like the male bathroom with the patrons in the front. Like it, like I found that kind of stuff kind of difficult or, you know, the sound, the grumpy sound men, like mm -hmm. they still are still around. And so my brother will go and like, be like, she uses she and her pronouns, whatever. So it's like that kind of stuff that I feel like I had to learn really quickly. I mean, I do think we're at an amazing time. There seems to be so many more openly queer and trans artists. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's very interesting to see that happening. Uh, but yeah, for me, I've had to sort of like learn as I go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Oh my God, my pleasure. And thanks for your deep dive. Like, yeah, I feel like you really like, yeah, <laughs> someone did a lot of uh, research. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. That was cultural rocket fuel Vivek Shraya. Find her book, How to Fail as a Pop Star, wherever you buy fine books. Now, as promised, let's meet Eden Robinson, author of the Trickster series of books. Her latest one, which wraps up the series, is called The Return of the Trickster, and it's available now wherever you buy fine books. The books are dark and gothic, but the characters are very likable, and you get invested in them. You want, you want the best to happen for them. Um, and it's because of that quirkiness and that playfulness. How did you choose that approach? Or was that, is that just you? You sound like you laugh easily. You sound. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a goth kid. Yeah. Like I was, I was pretty emo. Um, and until I was about 24, uh, I didn't really have like a, a <laughs> I wouldn't say I didn't have a sense of humor, but I was very 
very earnest. Mm. And I don't quite know what happened at 24. I think I just learned to chat. And it, it just like I had a roommate who was really chatty and I learned how to chat and it was kind of world expanding. But I, all of my mentors were social realists. I had grown up uh, loving horror and science fiction. Uh, so all those elements kind of combined. And I know like, even as I was going into Monkey Beach, I was still an incredibly earnest person. So uh, that was my first foray away from my minimalist roots where like I was heavily influenced by Raymond Carver, like that, you know, you, you must, adjectives are evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah very, very muscular writing. Yes, and, yes. And, uh, yeah, and hard-boiled, I guess. Is what <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was the school, that was who I was, sort of model I was going for, and uh, I, I, when I read them now, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of like muscular senses. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's, that's who I was. And it, it's kind of like reading a high school journal now. It's like, uh, Monkey Beach was the first time I stepped away from that. When you quit smoking, it kind of changes everything in your life for a short while anyway. And Eden Robinson found that when she quit her five pack a day habit, it affected not only her, but the character she was writing about. Here's Eden Robinson. I had been a social smoker up until my first book deadline. And then I went hardcore, two packs a day. I could go up to five, um, but mostly it was it was a, just a solid two. And uh, yeah, I had one of those jelly IMAX. Right, like yeah, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I had to bring it in twice while I was writing Monkey Beach because the tar from the cigarettes stopped the fans from spinning. Wow. I quit smoking uh, when I was finishing my, my second or third book. I can't remember which one it was. I was yes. under deadline and I yes. had to get it yes. in. And I stayed up yes. all night and I just, yes. I was chain smoking. And I, I was a yeah. chain smoker anyway. But yeah. the one thing, one rule I had was before I went to bed, I always emptied out the ashtrays because I didn't <laughs> in the morning to a full ashtray. So yeah. uh, I didn't, I'm exhausted. I stay up until 6 a.m. To, to finish it. And to, it, back in those days, I couldn't email it in. I was pr yeah. I had to print it. And, yeah. and I was going to take it down to the publisher the next day. And I woke up and my ashtray was piled, you know, a foot <laughs> high. It was like a Tetris game of cigarette, you know, and it disgusted me. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to smoke today. I did. I, I smoked enough last night. And that easily the 10th or 15th time I tried to quit smoking. And uh, it's the one that stuck. I have not smoked yeah. since then. So I have that oh, book to thank. Mine was sheer vanity. It was this, about the 17th time I tried to quit. And I had tried like, you know, uh, like hypnotherapy, like the acupuncture, uh, laser, Zant, uh, Champex, um, the gum, the patch, uh, and the patch only works if you can put it right over your mouth. So you <laughs> well, I discovered that they're really helpful for long flights. It'll get you through. <laughs> but no, it was sheer vanity. It was when I was breathing, it started to sound like someone stepping on bubble wrap. Mm -hmm. uh, and my doctors were uh, saying things like oxygen tank. 
and I thought it would be really hard to flirt. You're not wrong. First, yeah. <laughs> even first 2004. It's wow. like, yeah. Um, yeah, I was halfway through Blood Sports, and in the in the novel, you can actually see it, like, page uh, just after page 100, like, everything before that is, like, you know, the sad, melancholy novel of recovery. And then, you know, then there's a 40-page torture scene. <laughs> you know, my family love and support me, so they bought every single book that I published, but none of them could make it through that. We had to chop that. Uh, it was originally 80 pages, <laughs> and that was, like, in the absolute depths of withdrawal. Yeah. I was, I, my day job at that time was I was an archival assistant working in the resource center with fisheries and uh, public works and the mail and they were all cousins so I knew I was getting I was cranky because they would run up to my desk and throw cigarettes over the cubicle wall and then run away So by the time I got to the end of Blood Sports, I had resigned myself to never smoking again. You're listening to my interview with Eden Robinson, author of The Return of the Trickster. In this segment, I ask her, why did you quit writing for 10 years when your first books had been so successful? There was a 10 year break and it was just like one of the most intense you know, 10 years of my life. It was lots of things were happening, lots of you know, it was just life on life on life on life. It was 2011. Like I had started adjuncting for uh, low-res uh, creative writing programs. Uh, so sometimes I'd be doing two or three universities and have uh, even the marking was just incredible. <laughs> but, it, but it did get me thinking, you know, I really miss writing. And I kept waiting for my life to calm down, for, for things to, you know, and, you know, by the, t- usually for every single book up to the, that point, I've been a night writer. Mm-hmm. Like I had a night muse. And, uh, but by the time 10 o'clock rolled around, I was just done. <laughs> you know, it's already in my jammies. There was just like, I didn't have enough energy to create anything. So I thought about it and it was like, well, uh, if I want to write, I'm going to have to carve some time out in the morning. Uh, and the time that I had was uh, between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. Uh, so I just thought, well, I, I want to write. So this is the time that I can write. Uh, so I set my alarm. I set the coffee maker. And the first week, I think I, you know, the first day, I think I had a sentence. And the rest of it was just me sort of staring at the right. computer like, Oh my God, it's so early. <laughs> like I got a, a paragraph that first week. Uh, and I never, never wrote more than a, more than a page. But by the end of, by the end of that year, I had a first draft. Well, I think that there's also something about writing uh, at these, these odd hours, you know, four to 5 a.m. in the morning, because you yeah. can't do anything else. You know, there's no one to call. There's no, writers are great procrastinators. If there's something else to do, you'll probably find a way to do it. And there's no one to call. You can't vacuum. It's too early to vacuum. You may all sit there and write. Yeah, and there's, you know, and I knew that I only had that hour. Yeah. Because then I'd have to get up, have breakfast, and then start marking. Right. 
Um, so that magical combination of things helped me start writing again after after 10 years of just fiddling. Many cultures have a have a trickster figure. So what does the, the trickster in your books, what does that mean to you? I'm from the west coast of BC and from Alaska down to Washington. Uh, the, the trickster uh, is a, uh, a huge part of our culture. There's like a spectrum of tricksters from benevolent to malignant. Uh, so we get is somewhere in the messy middle. So he's a transforming raven. Potlatch cultures are all about hierarchy. They're all about the structure. There's a lot of critical. There's a lot of rules. Uh, some of them are, you know, formal. Some of them are informal. But, you know, I've, I've grown up with a family that loves bureaucracy. We're the beaver class. I don't know. How can we make this more complicated? <laughs> Uh, so our family is equally split between bureaucrats and crazy artists. Right. There are a lot of carvers, there are a lot of weavers, there's a lot of jewelry makers, totem poles, and I'm horrible with anything physical. I, I live in my brain. Well, uh, it's, it's lovely to speak to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And I'm sorry. That was Eden Robinson, author of The Return of the Trickster. That book is available wherever you buy fine books. My thanks to Eden. My thanks to Vivek Shraya. Find her book, How to Fail as a Pop Star, at all bookstores and online. You gotta keep showing up. That's the work. You gotta keep showing up. My biggest thanks, of course, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.